Welcome to the first episode of IoT on Tap for 2019. I'm here with Stephen Taylor and Mike Sturm and myself, Chris Herrera, and we're going to be talking about all things IoT yet again. So, Stephen, uh, quick introduction. Um, my name is Stephen Taylor. I'm an IT manager, so I, I manage people in uh, an oil and gas company, and I'm responsible for technologies that are related to reporting, analytics, um, data capture in oil and gas, and uh, reporting out on, on that data, and how we turn that into software that's useful for our business. Excellent. And everybody might know Mike already, but Mike, since this is 2019, are you new? Uh, no, I'm not new. In <laughs> fact, uh, as my coworkers point out to me often, uh, I am the oldest guy in the office pretty much, and uh, they point out that uh, I'm a bit crotchety. <laughs> Stephen, uh, what kind of experience? I, you've been around for a while. I can see you, so I, I know, uh, and I know your background, but maybe for the audience, you can give them an idea how much experience you have in the oil field. Yeah, so um, I've, I've got now close to 20 years in the oil and gas industry, and man, I hate to even say it, but almost 30 years now in the IT technology industry. So, it sneaks up on you. Yeah, I've been doing technology. I started out as an electrical engineer and um, kind of transitioned into the software side, found that I had a love and a passion for it. I'm starting to drift now back more into the convergence of you know, the hardware side and the software side and um, finding that some of my old engineering, electrical engineering skills are a little bit rusty, but especially for some of the side projects at home, I'm finding that I have a real passion around some of the electronics, especially embedded tech, especially as things continue to get smaller and smaller and faster. It's, it's becoming a really fascinating and fun industry. But that's kind of my background, I guess, is in, in uh, technology pretty much my whole life. Um, I'll give you a short, quick miniature story on how I got started. So my, uh, we, I don't know if you remember the old Mattel in television um, oh, so yeah. Go yeah, way yeah. back, right, pre-Atari. And uh, we got, that was the first video game console we got. And uh, my brothers and I all fell in love with this thing. And uh, my brother kept beating me at baseball. <laughs> and it made me angry at this baseball game. And so my dad, I got us the Mattel magazine, and they had an advertisement for this computer device you could plug in instead of the game cartridge. Then you could plug in the cartridge, and then you could reprogram the cartridge. So I added, went into the code, figured it out, and added that if you triple press the one of the buttons, it would throw, if you were outfielder and you had the ball, it would throw it home, just immediately. And uh, that gave me the advantage to win, and then I realized <laughs> this is really fun. So that's what got me started in technology. So essentially, hacking was your origin story. It is, yes. <laughs> your superhero origin story is hacking. Of course, um, it also got me beat up by my brother when he yeah. found out, but you know, it was part of the growing experience, and then... My dad said, hey, if you like this computer stuff, he had a terminal. He had to do his work at home. He had to write and run manual reports. So he had me start writing reports for him. So when I was a kid, I started writing reports. I love the simpler days where they just didn't care if you messed with the code. Just right. <laughs> go nuts. Yeah, it was amazing that there was no copy protection on those. Oh, games, no. You know, I mean, none at all. It was pretty, it was pretty fun. Well, it was. I did mess up a couple games in the process. And that's, that's what I would refer to as a hardware key. <laughs> yeah, you have right. the extra piece of hardware, you could get into anything. Yeah. I think the, uh, the thing for me is, is I don't do maybe as much uh, at home as a hobby in the electronics or, you know, this kind of realm, but uh, I'm more CNC type, you know, uh, machinery, woodworking type thing, but 
it's amazing to me how much it switched from what you could do with a soldering iron to what you do in code. So you look at like a Raspberry Pi or some of these things. A lot of that stuff that we would have done with hard, uh, you know, design circuits and, you know, hardwired things now is really a, more of a software environment. It's very flexible. And it, I think it inspires a lot of people to have accessibility. So the most important bit, ah. what are you guys drinking? So, Stephen, we'll start with you. So I'm drinking this incredible voodoo that you got me, the Voodoo Dixie, and it's a blackened lager. And um, I didn't know what to expect since I've, I kind of have a love-hate relationship with blackened, but it's pretty tasty. Excellent. So I've got the Carbock Chocolate Stout, and this is another one that sort of surprised me. Uh, I, I like chocolate stouts, but generally uh, it's more stout than chocolate. This is definitely chocolate overtone it's like drinking uh it's like drinking a candy bar it's really pretty interesting and i'm drinking the wicked juicy ipa which is uh it's good i'm i'm not a despite the beard i'm not the ipa connoisseur but uh it's not it's not as bitter as some ipa so i quite it's it's very refreshing i'm gonna give it that it, that juicy ipa it, it it's more juice than it is ipa so <laughs> I'm, I'm enjoying it quite a bit. So let's just go ahead and roll on into uh, the meat of the discussion for today. Uh, one of the things I'm interested to get your opinion on, Stephen, is from an oil field perspective, uh, what is the value? We've talked a lot on this podcast about how to collect the data, where to land the data, what do the architectures look like that support that, what did the infrastructure look like that supports that. But what I'd like to focus on a little bit more today is what is the value on collecting the data from either a drilling rig or a production platform, things of that nature. So if you go, if you could go into that a little bit, that'd be great. Yeah. So I think that to me, the core value is really getting to the point to where you can make better informed decisions um, in the process, but then the informed decisions lead to better actions. And to me, it's not until you close the loop to the actions that it really um, becomes something that's really tangible. So the value of collecting the data in itself, I get uh, kind of frustrated at times by some of our teams that, you know, they want to collect the data. So they put it in a database and they build reports on it. And um, but you never really do anything with it other just then inform people and expect that somebody's magically going to turn that into something that's more, you know, tangible or valuable. So as an example, um, you know, if you're collecting production data and that includes downtime data, right? At what point do you say we're collecting enough information that a superintendent can decide how do I eliminate that downtime? How do I create the actions that know, well, if my downtime that's related to a particular event is because I've you know, oversaturated the pipeline, what, what, what point are you going to monitor the pipeline and say, I'm not going to, I'm going to decrease my production to keep me from doing that, from shutting that well in. Right. So until you can get to the point to where you're clear on the actions that you intend to take because of the data, then you're, you're essentially extrapolating and putting all that pressure back on the person who's consuming those reports to make all those decisions. How do you then close that loop back with them? I mean, I, my passion is really around building that to where the closed loop is an automated action taking, right? So you have you know, systems that can actually take that action for you, and then you're guiding and optimizing those. Um, but even if you can just do it and have an intentional thing that you're saying, look, you need to go take this action item, 
that's really where the power comes into play. To your point, I, I completely agree. Um, it seems like a lot of the innovation in streaming that data from the rigs or the production facilities has been more to, as they say, uh, remove the expertise from the rig or the production facility and spread it out across multiple rigs. But really all they've succeeded in doing is pulling that data from the SCADA system or from the acquisition system that's sitting out there at the rig or the EDR and essentially moving and replicating those displays somewhere in Houston or Oklahoma City or wherever you are, right? Yes. Yeah, the discussion between the uh, the discussion between the uh, the IT group or the uh, you know the uh, the data group that's going to acquire and bring the stuff into the system, and the person who's using it uh, ends up being kind of condensed down to I need more data. When in reality, what you see and we see all the time is that uh, they want data in a context that makes sense. So kind of wrapped around their existing data stores or views or whatever they have. So the operations person can make a decision and that gets filtered down to just give me more data. And it's sort of this, if you build it, they will come type approach to data acquisition and storage, which is, well, mm-hmm. I've given you all the data here in a bucket. You know, you should be able to do uh, magic now. And that just doesn't work really. Yeah, and I think it's because that data is typically lacking context, right? So let's use your Raspberry Pi example. I've got a Raspberry Pi, and it's connected to a bunch of sensors. And I'm feeding the data from the Raspberry Pi up to some data processing center. That Raspberry Pi maybe has an IP address and maybe some name you've assigned to it, right? And the sensors maybe have a sensor ID. Let's just use GUIDs as artificial tags for those, right, and feed it up. What does that mean in context if you have that Raspberry Pi as an example doing door sensors that the door is open, right? So you say GUID door, GUID number whatever is open. And somebody's like, I don't know what that yeah. means, right? I mean, I had, it doesn't mean anything. Well, if it's the door to the room where we're doing the podcast recording, is probably different than if it's, you know, the yeah. the door to the main front door. The office is hand, handling wide open. So that context matters. Yeah. We had, we had a discussion uh, sometime last year with the uh, CEO of a consumer electronics. They make the, they, they generally OEM kind of their electronics parts to like mow in for a smart, a smart faucet and things like that. Um, what the discussion we got into to take this kind of out of IT, but just into a relatable uh, tone is Today, you have these various smart home platforms, you know, the Apple Home, you have uh, the Samsung Smart Things, things of that nature. And they're great. They let you connect up a sensor. But it's exactly like you say. I've got all my lights, and I've got a garage door sensor, and I've got a door sensor. And it's telling me the door is open. Well, that's fantastic. Oh, you want to do something to say, oh, when the door is open, then turn on the lights. So you got to do some JavaScript and you got to get right. in there and you got to and you got to be a developer to do it. And this goes back to what you were saying, Mike, which is a lot of this stuff is just, OK, we're going to take this information that was over there and now we're going to bring it to wherever you are, not tell you any derivative or actionable information. We're going to give you the same information just wherever you are. And uh, I, I'm wondering, what's the next step? Like, what is, specific to the oil field, what is the thing that's blocking our ability to take that next step 
to where we can actually start building those actions? What, what would you yeah. think is a starting point? Well, I, I mean, I'll use a couple examples. So building on our conversation, right? I have an Allen Bradley piece of equipment that's on the field site that's monitoring my artificial lift controller, and it's sending some information back to this data storage array. So maybe in our particular example that goes back through Signet and lands in Pi and goes into a Pi historian. When I go and look at it, it just has an Allen Bradley ID and it's got in the Pi historian. It has a bunch of whatever the sensor readings are, right? It doesn't really tell me anything in real context, right? So the point is, is what is the thing that you're going to drive that's going to be the action item assignment technique? that you're going to use to assign whoever's managing that site that that artificial pump is stopped and the pressure is too low and it needs to get turned back on to go do that, right? So the first step is really understanding how you're going to do that. Some companies use SAP's work order system. Some people use Wellview's working tr work track system. I mean, there's a hundred different ways to do that, but the point is is that if you're going to have a foreman or a superintendent or whoever that's assigning the work to that person to go to that site to take an action they need to be bought in that there's a way to create an action in that work system and that that's a really important system loop to say it's not just a matter of putting it in the report you have to create that thing in the work system and it's whatever work system they use and Unfortunately, most of the corporate offices, it's an Excel spreadsheet or it's a, you know, one of the people in the office has written some access database for their office, but it's different in that division than it is for a different division. And it's just all over the place, right? So getting some buy-in that when we're doing the work assignment and when we're tracking it, uh, because is, is really important. That, that loop and closing it to the place where people manage the work assignments is really important. And um, it takes some buy-in with the leadership in that particular area. And what you'll find is each group does it differently. Some group says, I have senior level people. I'm going to empower them to make it and do it on their own. They track it in whatever they want. Other people say, well, my guys are junior. So we're going to have somebody in the central office who's, you know, a dispatcher who's controlling that. Whatever that mechanism is and whatever that work product is, you've got to figure out a way to get that data converted from the raw data and into a context applied action and get that action into the work system. That's the first kind of closed loop you have to do. So, and even then though, once the work's done, being able to bring that data, that uh, the, the closure and the context and the resolution yeah. data back into the monitoring system. So, you know, yeah, closing you close it to action, loop, but actually right. bringing the action back into the system that you're using to do your monitoring and triggering to initiate so that you can kind of evaluate how successful or, you know, how, uh, how much value was there in that? Maybe we should have done something different or maybe we shouldn't have done anything at all. Yeah. I think in it, right. We do this in it. We call it a ticketing system, right? So we have their service ticketing system. And when there's a computer that's break, somebody calls in the help desk, you create a ticket in the ticketing system and somebody needs to go close that ticket. Well, you can just go close it or you can actually do the work and then close it. Yeah, you know, that's what you hope people do, right? Right. We won't talk about IT problems. <laughs> that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. But it's it's the management of the work, yeah. right? It's getting it in the work management system. So this brings up an interesting point, which is, okay, so we are getting to the point where we can move the data to a person now. Uh, and yeah. in some places, you're getting to the point where possibly there's an inkling of hope that you can close that loop through a ticketing system or work order system, well view, something like that. Yeah. 
Phase one. Uh, phase one. Now, this is the the problem that I'm seeing, not just in oil and gas, but really just across the across the board. There's all this discussion about ML, AI, and how this is going to revolutionize the way we do business. So before we go there, Chris, sorry to interrupt you. I wanted to close. I wanted to talk about one other thing. Sure. Why can we not do the first phase? Well, actually, that's what I was getting to. Okay, go ahead. So sorry. the thing I was mentioning is... You see these ML or these AI POCs that go out there. And, you know, this guy might have figured out a way to turn cotton into gold or something like that. But at the end of the day, it always falls down at the fact that somehow this guy's algorithm has to get data. And somehow that algorithm has to get that result out to a person in the context that they were expecting. So I, I find it that there's a huge fallacy right now that you can kind of skip step one, hmm. go to step seven, and then somehow that's going to automatically give you everything before that. And, and what I'm noticing over and over again is that everybody starts kind of where they want to end up, and they haven't done any of the stuff to get it. I, to me, at least from my viewpoint, that's one of the largest issues that, that, that at least oil and gas is going to have in the adoption of these newer technologies, just due to the fact that in order to make them useful, you have to connect all of this plumbing together before this actually bears any sort of actual ROI to a, a company. And it, and it has, and there's really kind of two sides of that. We see, we, we joke all the time. We we've stolen from a TV show that we've seen that, you know, it's step one, get data, step two, analyze data, step four, profit. And that sort of jump, whether, and you can really look at it, there's really two things we see, or at least I see, is operationalizing. So you've done some stuff, and now you need to move it uh, to a repeatable industrialized process. But someone really smart has spent a month working on the data, cleaning it up, analyzing it, doing a bunch of things, but they've done that as a sole actor. So now the model's ready. You put the model in on top of the dirty, nasty, real data, and they think, oh, well, this is a waste of time. It's not working. It doesn't give us what we expected. Or, um, you know, what Chris is saying, which is even if you can do it, you can't tie it back into something that uh, can be monetized and acted on. Right. And that's a little bit why I was saying the MLAI, the, the kind of intelligent analytics stuff is really step seven. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. if you haven't created your pipeline, if you haven't been able to manage any sort of data wrangling, if you don't have repeatable analytics that are occurring, I don't understand how you can expect to go from, I'm not doing coherent analytics today. And when I say analytics, I'm talking about building a report, doing maybe a few table joins out of a database to, all right, we're going to use this RNN to go ahead and predict the future for us. I mean, that's just... To me, there's there's such a wide mis uh, there's there's a misunderstanding of how wide that gap is yeah. Yeah, to a lot of different people. I, I blame Google, and and Apple. Um, <laughs> I blame Google for a lot of things too. <laughs> so I, don't I, sue us, Google. <laughs> right. And and I, I'll give you a specific conversation that I had that, to tell why. So I had a conversation with one of our leaders at one point who was really upset. Right, that all of the data and all of the stuff about all of the uh, assets and everything that we had um, weren't available in our intranet search. 
right? And he's and that it didn't perform instantly. And his point was, I can search the entire internet in Google in like a half a second, and you're telling me, you know, it's going to take you a while to search the data warehouse to process all of our production records. What's the what's wrong with this picture? And I was like, one, the, what's wrong with this picture is you don't understand technology. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and, a... <laughs> and, the, and the difference in investment and finances that you've given me compared <laughs> to what Google spends on theirs. But I think it's the consumerization of IT expectation change. But um, what's interesting is we do tend to understand this intrinsically in every other area, in a, most every other area. And so I'll give a couple examples. Um, I don't think most people would expect that you could go to high school and take a good high school basketball player and take them into the NBA, you know, unless it's a LeBron, right? Kind of those weird edge cases. You expect people to have to go through a certain series of discipline and training and maturity models, right? And I think the same thing applies. I wouldn't go get an entry level, you know, a really good architect that does residential homes and say, I need you to build the next 50 story skyscraper, Right. right? There's a certain level of expertise that everybody knows that you have to go through to build a foundation of expertise in those areas to build over time. You don't become, you know, a giant corporation with billions of dollars overnight. It takes a lot of time to build out all that infrastructure and the people ecosystems. And we kind of know that intrinsically, but when it comes to technology, we start to expect, you know, my I can just do all this stuff and it's all easy, right? Because then a lot of the consumer products have made things so easy for technology that we start to expect all those pieces is easy. And and we need to build it in that order. We need to understand what that order is. And so my primary example I, I want to go into is around cars, but I think Mike has something. He oh, to no, I was just pointing that out that uh, from a technology perspective and most people's lack of awareness of what the technology really, what it really happens underneath the covers when you type into the Google search bar, what actually happens. And so it becomes a case of looks like, well, that looks like this. Therefore they, you know, it's the same thing. And, you know, there's no kind of concept of uh, the underlying, like I said, the, the, okay, the last 20 years they've been doing that to get to this point, And we're just starting on the journey. One thing I will point out though, uh, for the latecomers to this kind of industry trend, uh, there's a little bit of benefit, right? If you wanted to do this 10 years right. ago, it was very much a roll-your-own type situation. That's true. You were going to get you know, whatever distribution of Hadoop and HDFS and make your data lake out of Hive. And even back then, it was extraordinarily difficult from a skill sets perspective, from a base technology perspective, from a... a uh, investment that you had to make in that infrastructure there was a huge barrier to entry but now to your point specifically google and those guys who figured it out made the investments and have these server farms with more servers than your company could ever hope to purchase they are now renting that out to you along with the technology and the technology is getting easier right i mean what five years ago six years ago well actually a little bit longer than that now the it started as IaaS, which is just a server somewhere on the internet, and Somebody now else's it's data center, right? And now it's started to creep up to the fact where I can legitimately make an entire serverless application to where I don't have to care about the database, I don't have to care about the functions that are running on it. If I use, for example, uh, functions as a service, uh, functions on Azure, and I use you know SQL Warehouse and I use Databricks 
That's I don't have to worry about tuning the OS. I don't have to worry right. about securing the OS. I don't have to worry about physical security. And you can just a lot of cases put in a credit card number and turn it on and yeah. it's up and running in a couple hours, right? Yeah, and and to that point uh from an infrastructural level, I think that the latecomers to this game have a have a little bit of an advantage because it's it's always easier to kind of just start greenfield, get something off the ground, you know, okay, I've got sphere, you know, Azure Sphere or something like that. And I can just go straight green grass, everything's new versus this huge change management to, you know, I had uh, an Apache Hadoop distribution and I had this uh, OSGI implementation of Cura somewhere out there doing right. my IoT and rolling that all back is, is a, a mountain of work. So there is that. But this also brings in another element to the discussion which I think today a lot of software architects aren't paying attention to. Back then, you cared about efficiency, you cared about security, you cared about how do I get this maintainable code base, how do I keep it running, that kind of stuff. Now there's this whole cost component to it. And if you've ever, I almost need an ML algorithm to figure out how much Amazon is going to charge me for (laughs) a specific set of services because it you can architect something 85,000 different ways on one of these cloud providers. But there is kind of the cheap way to do it, the fast way to do it. And the line between you can have it cheap, you can have it fast, or you can have it good is getting blurred a little bit. And having to deal with that, that's that's one of the areas where I think um, some of the SaaS providers that are coming out today are really uh, doing a good job at truly differentiating. I mean, up till this point, we've seen like Amazon has RDS, which is uh, relational database services. It allows you to host kind of one of four different distributions of databases. And they've got things like uh, Redshift, but you're still fundamentally choosing kind of, okay, I'm going to have this instance below it. And it's a little bit like HDI on Azure. I want this cluster size and I want to do, you're still managing infrastructure. But now we're starting to get things like Snowflake, which is a step change in how you manage data without thinking about the compute really from a physical level. You have this logical concept of a warehouse, and that's really all you care about. And you care about the warehouse from a concurrency user load perspective versus caring about, okay, I've got this data and I've got compute nodes and I need to figure out how to shard my data so that the right data is on the right compute nodes and make sure that everything's in the right place that I am not shuffling and all that stuff. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts on how kind of this SaaS plus plus in the data management side of things is possibly going to help with this problem that we've identified here of not being able to get the context into the data. So every company just about that I've worked with had a goal. Um, if you ask the business users, had a goal to say, look, I'm tired of the complexity of having to jump in and through 10 different systems. And I spend all my time trying when I'm wanting to do data analysis or trying to make better business decisions, integrating my data, cleaning my data, processing my data. It's all the data prep stuff, right? I spend 80% or 90% of my time doing data prep work and 10% of my time doing an analytics work. And I want to do more analytics work, and I do want to do a whole lot less of that data prep, data cleansing. That doesn't devalue that work. But technically, in the past, um, those systems had the compute and the, the storage tightly coupled. 
and the costs for both the storage and the compute on those larger systems were also tightly coupled. And so what you're seeing now with things, especially like Snowflake that you mentioned and some of the other larger application systems and you know Azure SQL Warehouse and some of the others is where they've decoupled those functions, RDS that you mentioned, um, the cost for the storage is almost dirt cheap. So you can take literally petabytes of data that you've loaded almost every single source system you have and probably every source system that most companies have and put it in one database. And what, what technically prevented that in the past was to store that much data in one capacity in one node that's manageable and referenceable, you had to have, you know, huge clusters of servers backed by huge clusters of storage that typically was very important from a business process. So what did your infrastructure guys typically do? You know, we put things like large scale Hitachi, NetApp, big storage arrays right behind these things that are high performance. And some, a lot of them, you started putting flash directly in these storage arrays, right? To get the performance you needed. And now when you're, they're shifting that, the engineering side behind some of these systems they're starting to manage that for you. And to your point, you're not having to deal with that. Um, they've got engineers at a much larger scale. When I met with Microsoft, you know, they were talking hundreds of thousands of employees managing their data centers. Uh, there's no way, even a large company that has a thousand IT employees, it's hard to anywhere close to have the engineering discipline to come up with something that manages it at that scale. So what you're seeing is the cost is dramatically going down. I mean, I was staggered when I saw the prices of storing in S3 and, and in Snowflake, how cheap some of the storage was. I can put petabytes in there without costing a lot of money. Um, right. and, and I think to your, to your point about the tightly coupled compute and data, one of the things that is a fallacy that happens quite often early on in these data lake projects, when you talked about it, Mike, that you're going to make this giant bucket of data. Mm -hmm. The problem is when you make a giant bucket of data, people want access to that giant bucket of data. And the more data you put in there, the more people want access to that data. Yep. So even if you don't have, if you're not at the multi-petabyte scale, the problem is because that coupled compute and data storage if I have 1,200 people who want concurrent access to that data, right. I now have to scale out my data and my compute nodes, and now I've got to worry about network latency of shuffling small amounts of data across hundreds of nodes to try to serve all of these users who are making these insane queries. And so I, I completely agree with you that, uh, that this separation of this compute and storage and actually not having to worry about okay now i need fusion io flashcards and all right, this kind of right. stuff not having to be bothered with that the the time versus value curve shifts much more towards business value than just building up the infrastructure you're, yeah. you're spending a lot more time answering the roi based questions rather than the, I'm going to build the car to get you to where you want to go. What's amazing about that, though, is it, it's actually cheaper. Right. So it's not as it, not only is it faster time to value and easier to implement, it's just from a straight cost perspective, it's typically a lot cheaper, right? Because right. Because to build out a single system, I mean, take, I, I'm going back a couple of years before some of the cloud services came out, but take one of the top end uh, I remember when the HP Superdomes kind of were the dominant player. You know, you take one of those boxes, the biggest you could buy a 64 processor, you know, 64 cores in a single box loaded with, you know, eight, get 
gigabytes of RAM. And now that's like almost my iPhone. Right. And so it's the, the technology as it continues to rapidly change in that capacity to build out that same kind of capacity in an on-premise data center can be prohibitively expensive to, because the technology, you know, is in a single box. I mean, traditional Oracle, SQL, et cetera, you know, will, will run on that single box. And even if you try to do, I mean, we tried Oracle Rack and all kinds of other different configurations, right, to get that higher performance, higher availability with the thousand user plus users concurrent. And it's really difficult to do that at scale without isolating yeah. those two components. The, uh, go ahead, Mike. I would say the the from coming at it from the business side, looking at it from sort of the end use business side, though, that the risk uh, that I see is that because it is so inexpensive that you can really sort of go wrong in a very basic way from the beginning because if i'm going to do an installed you know if i'm going to do a local data center a managed data center and i'm going to spend three or four million dollars i need to have good justification i need to have a solid business plan you went out and you said this is what we're going to get and what it's going to benefit and the roi and then they invested now it's kind of like you said i swipe my credit card i load a petabyte of data and it's not expensive but now you've just created this morass of a system that you have to try to now elevate yourself from. So you still need, I guess my point is you still need good planning and a good uh, strategy and target to work towards. It can't just be go because it's inexpensive. I, I, I agree with you. I think, but what all you're really doing is you're shifting it to exactly what Chris said right. is you're shifting it to higher value add activities because now that I've taken all the data from, and from all the different systems and put it in that location, the one thing you want to start doing then is building good data governance, good data cataloging, good data visibility, um, good ways to show the business value data sets. Because honestly, I, if you're, I mean, most oil and gas companies that I know of today are running uh, Peloton's Wellview or other right. suite. They're running, you know, applications for production accounting like uh, ProCounts or Toe, right? right. And th- you kind of take this suite of industry standard software components if you ever wanted to switch from one product to another product that does the same function, it's really painful. And if you've given everybody access to that particular data and they're used to the data structures that are defined by that application, right, then you're, you're fundamentally, you're, you have problems. Every company I know has tried some type of um, integrated well life cycle project plan, right, to try to get to, okay, I've got 45 applications that all have my well in it. How do I manage the workflow across those 45 apps and kind of that visibility of what does that golden master record look like becomes a lot more straightforward when you can create it semantically clean. So if it's not Wellview's definition of a well, but if it's your company's definition of a well, right? Or if it's here's how we as a company define how we look at production volumes for oil and gas volumes, those become application independent there's a lot of work to get the data out of all the source system formats and into something that's semantically clean um, that's exchangeable I I, think, I, yeah i think defining all, all of that on early on in the process is a little bit like we were talking about earlier there has to be some thing that you're aiming towards in order to do these things like complete the loop yeah. Okay, we want to deliver this piece of information to this guy in this context. So the person who's using Wellview to do to find data for offset well analysis or something like that, 
you have to be able to deliver that data to that user in the context that they're ready to look at it in. And and to be fair, uh, a lot of times that's Excel, right? Let's <laughs> let's be honest. That's the that's still the number one drilling engineering application in the world. It's the I mean it's like we talked about earlier, right? Everybody who doesn't use Excel wants their application to look like a grid, so it looks like Excel. That's right. <laughs> So uh, the the other thing I wanted to touch on while we were kind of going down these SaaS uh, pieces, and to your point, Mike, about, okay, this data scientist has created this awesome thing in the corner. You know, we fed him nothing but soda pop and candy until he came out with value. Now he has to operationalize it. One of the things that I see that is starting to trend towards a, a more SaaS-based offering is something like Databricks, for example. Mm-hmm where now you have this online notebook, right? So with Snowflake, I can clone my data set. I don't have to stand up a second Hadoop infrastructure and use Scoop or Uzi or whatever to move that data between these two giant infrastructures and make sure that it's always synced. I can just clone the database and now this guy's gonna work on his online notebook and code in Python and just be able to do the wrangling he wants to do in a self-describing, essentially, notebook, I think that that's going to be a, a uh, another step change in the way in which we do data analysis and also be able to socialize it in the organization. Now, that might be me reaching a little further than, than where we're at today, but that's I, I see that we're trending in the right... I, I'm not saying that we're there by any means, but I, I see that we're trending in the right direction. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that, Stephen. Yeah, I think you're... I think you're right. I think there's a couple things. It's one is the fact that you have all those different users pointing at that same repository with their own same workspaces. They're all pointing to Snowflake, right, as a common way. And that the notebooks are shareable. So in the Mike, your example with Mike, where you're feeding the guy, you know, pizza and, and <laughs> uh, Cokes in the corner, he's probably working on his own machine in a version of Python that's not compatible with anybody else's version of Python. So right. Whenever they share it with somebody else, nobody else can run it because they don't have all the right CPAN library dependencies <laughs> mapped out. And, you know, yeah. and so there's just so much complexity to make it compatible. One of the things with those SaaS services like the Databricks services is I can go in and I can build it, but I can share it. And it's that shared collaboration feature that's integral to that collaboration feature of those data sets. And that there's a, I can put like, not comments, but I can actually put descriptive words in the text of the right. notebook, right? And and it's not just about the raw core data sets. But another one that I see as a challenge for Excel that I see this pattern overcoming, and we're already starting to see it at scale, is some of these data sets are really, really large. Right. And, you know, the traditional um, tools like Spotfire and, and uh, Excel, you know, when you have to go and say, well, this data set I want to do some analysis on, so I'm going to pull it down into Spotfire or into Excel, and it's a, you know, it's a terabyte, and my local hard drive fills up, and it crashes right. my machine. Oh, so I'll just put it on my user share on the <laughs> network, right? And it's like, well, if you execute it in the notebook, it stays in the cloud. It executes in the cloud, right? right. There's no data movement back and forth, and and so getting people used to that concept that as with the data volumes continue to grow and we actually start collecting those data because there's let's let's be real 90% of the data that happens in the field we're not collecting right we delete it at the field before it ever comes into our network if we collected all the data 
most of our users' tools couldn't handle the volume of the data that they want to use. Right. And that so that's a good point. And we, we talked about this before the podcast. The oil field collects a lot of data. But yeah. really, the data that we collect is a fraction of the data that we generate. And the sad thing is that of the data we collect, we're really not utilizing it to really i wouldn't not not the fullest degree we're not even utilizing it to i would even say 30 percent of its capability and and from utilization i you know chris and i both have experience with a fairly large oil and gas services company and we can say that in some of the systems even the data that collected uh, a lot of the times the uh the clients who actually paid for that data to be collected they only downloaded 15 or 20 percent of it so you know, utilization is one thing, but even retaining it for later is not even guaranteed. Yeah, so, in fact, it usually isn't. Right. I, I yeah. think that the the problem that we started out with, which is we're getting good at moving the data to people, not getting great at actioning people to do something, or even better, actioning a thing to do a thing so that a human doesn't have to be involved. In order to do that, there's going to have to be some hard work of analysis. There's going to be, there's going to have to be an honest effort at data cleansing, data quality, and truly understanding the value of some of these data points that we're collecting. Because a lot of times I see that there are certain companies that put a lot of value into data point A. And really, data point A is not telling you a whole lot. They just know that they've collected data point A for 35 years, and they really need to keep on collecting data point A. They don't really know why, but that's what they want to do. Or we're going to collect every one of our tags from Signet, all 300,000 of them, when 100,000 of them are template tags that are doing nothing else but describing some sort of process in Signet that is not of no use to anybody. I think, right. and this goes all the way back to the data organization in the snowflake part that we just talked about your the a lot of people are getting confused in the fact that their core business should be it when they're an oil company or they're a manufacturing company or they're a life sciences company they get stuck on the it portion where the differentiator is now that this technology is becoming easier from the guys who do technology the amazons the googles the snowflakes the databricks let them do that. We're going to differentiate by how we utilize this data, how we classify this data, how we organize this. To your point, how does our company define a well? How does our company define a production facility? How do we define daily allocations? Those are things that I think we spend so much time worrying about infrastructure and infrastructure costs that we, we are just now getting to the point where I think the infrastructure is getting easy enough that we can start thinking about the different. And I just kind of wanted to end on that note and see what you guys thought if we're getting to that point where we can actually start spending some brain cycles on actually tackling what is a, a, a domain entity to a company. So what are your thoughts are on how close we are to that, I guess? Um, I, I still think we have a long way to go. Okay. as an industry. And um, I think that two big things need to happen. One, the technology people need to get out of the data center and get closer to the business units. And so that we're solving hands on the ground, real problems that are happening with our business groups 
and not trying to solve technical infrastructure problems. And, and a lot so, of that is going to alleviate that buy-in problem that, that yeah. you guys mentioned earlier. Yeah, because if you know, uh, like take a take a uh, tank is I'm the, one of the most simplistic ones, right? You have a tank, and you say, I know this tank holds X number of gallons, and there's a meter that I have on the side that tells me how full the tank is. Right. When the tank gets full or within ninety percent of capacity, you need to send a, a truck out to haul the oil off. Right. It's <laughs> right. a pretty simple example. So then tracking the volume. And having a report about the volume doesn't do you anything. Doesn't do any good until you can create the action to go order a truck. Order to the come, truck to go the get the oil. To go yeah. get the oil, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's probably one of our most simplistic examples we could use. The sample rates for that, probably once an hour, right. once a day, are, are fine, right? The challenge is, is you really don't know what those problems are until you get close to the business. Because if you start thinking about things that are like. Uh, pressure that's in a delivery system pipeline how, what does that mean and how do you turn that into something actionable you know until you really understand the oil and gas context of that particular sensor and and what it means and then what actions you take when you hit a certain level that requires a much closer connection to that to that group and that's where i think a lot of our disconnects are in a lot of cases think um, the average um, compressor as an example um, has somewhere between 20 to 40 sensors on a compressor. Well, how, how do you how do you build the business acumen around what things need to be managed, managed, monitored, and other ones is um, probably the the people who are already operating that have a lot of business acumen and value in adding to that to say what should and shouldn't be done from a day-to-day tactical operation. That's the first step. I think the so though to start applying data science and really looking at compressor failure, for example, and what of those you know sensors are really applicable to compressor failure and how much data you need in the sample rate is a whole different game, right? So that to me is where I think the bigger disconnect is between the leap from the acumen of the person that it takes to run the rig. And we talked about it a little bit before, right? If a, a person who's been working for 20 years plus in the oil rig running a rig may not care about 90% of the different things that are available to them, the pieces of information. So how do you get it to where it's clear that the pieces that are really helpful to them may be things that are hidden from them or, or so discreet? You have to figure out how to translate it into that context that it's helpful to them yeah. in their job. Yeah, so there's a couple of things. I like your tank example because I think one of the other things is that we tend to be self-handicapping, that we start out by saying, okay, we have the tank, we have the tank level sensor, we want to look at uh, pumping it out when it's full, and so we're going to take the measurement sampling once a day is fine. And we don't we don't sort of take that next logical step a lot of times to say, well, we want to be able to sample maybe every five minutes, but we'll start with once a day. And so we install hardware and systems and structure out there that only can do it once a day. And so mm-hmm. we kind of limit ourselves from the very beginning that we'll never get more value and than so what we start with. To build on that, then when you, that's the next day, phase I was talking about in the data science phase is maybe I want to do tank leak detection and not just tank level sensor for hauling off the oil, right? And tank leak detection is much more finite, right? It's much more tricky and the measurement of it you don't want anything to leak onto the ground. When there's a spill, you need a lot faster action than you do, you know, in predicting right. the yeah. next, you know, in the next two weeks, it's going to be full. So that may require a much more sensitive set of uh, sensors to do that work. 
Yeah. And, and the second thing I think that goes to Chris's question is, I think the oil field, we tend to see ourselves as we're special. Everything we do, if we're recording torque, that's special torque because it's coming from a top drive and it's not, you know, a, uh, you know, conveyor in a in a factory, right? I think that's so, the official PPDM name is special torque. Special, <laughs> I think it's special <laughs> high torque. But, um, but that kind of cultural thought process, I think we have to sort of shed that specialness in some ways about some of the things we're doing and, you know, managing your own data center versus using, a, you know, a cloud service and, and accepting the fact that some things we do are very special and are very custom and are, and are really oil field things. But there's a lot of things that we do that we attempt to do ourselves because we think that that, well, that torque, you know, that's torque on a, uh, a water pump. So that can't be, you know, top drive torque. Those two things have to be completely different because they're not oil field. And I think some of that is cultural for us that we have to accept the fact that other industries do the same things we're doing in a slightly different flavor and they're maybe doing it better than us. And we need to capture that into, uh, into this culture that we can learn from other people and not everything oil is special. Yeah. So we uh, had a really good conversation about on this topic recently where we were talking about, um, water salinity for, you know, for heavy water in the field and how we test for it. And we were, we were describing the sensors that they were using and they were very expensive, difficult to calibrate, and um, I was like, are we talking about, you know, EC sensors or is this like total dissolved solids? Is this just a TDS meter? Is that what we're talking about? <laughs> and they're, you know, after some conversation, it's like, yeah, that's, that's what it is. <laughs> and, and we got to discussing, it. I was like, well, you know, the medical industry uses that all over the place, right? Is there, why don't we just get a couple of the medical industry TDS meters and, we started looking at it and, you know, ones that we were paying, you know, tens of thousands of dollars for these special oil and gas, you know, TDS meters. We actually got a higher quality scientific medical grade meter for 120 bucks. And I'm like, wait, we're paying more than the medical industry because the, our stuff is special for yeah. our sensors? We so. were dealing with, uh, with a company that they were undergoing a POC with a... Um, uh, company that was going to do some computer vision work and essentially it was just a, a camera that was doing some very basic object detection and i'm not talking about a zone zero camera something that has to be extrinsically safe and right, all sorts right. of stuff this is a camera that sits way off in the in the yonder and and is not allowed to go near the rig and that's they'll rent it to you for about eight thousand dollars a month and then you just go, you, you, you open up the fancy faux metal case and you realize it's the video camera for 75 bucks on Amazon. <laughs> and you're just like, all righty then. I think uh, <laughs> we can solve this problem. Yeah. So, well, this has been an interesting discussion. Uh, one thing I like to end these podcasts with is what is your most outlandish prediction for where technology is going to be in 10 years? Because I, I, I like to look back on this. Because when I was a kid, it was always, you know, jetpacks and holograms. And we're going to have wormholes. And I'm going to be able to go to other galaxies. It's going to be awesome. Uh, obviously, none of that's happening. So what are your what is your most outlandish prediction for the next 10 years? What do you think is going to be the landscape? So um, 
before I answer the question, I'll, I'll put in a plug. So if you if you don't follow kind of the futurist technology futurist, oh, one of my yes. favorites is Ray Kurzweil, yes. and uh, he's the CTO right now of Google, I think. Um, he has a he also was the guy who came up with the book The Singularity Is Near, and there's a Singularity University for executives to to attend to get the concepts and a website called Singularity Hub. But he wrote a he wrote a, a paper that is published on the website. If you just search for Ray Kurzweil and exponential technology, um, it's a fascinating read, and it's a and it's an academic dissertation more or less on some of the stuff. It's really worth reading. But what he talks about is that we as humans tend to think of linear and we relate to linear things and advancements in a linear fashion. And the computing power is more than just Moore's law, but in a lot of the data processing, is it's growing and processing exponentially, not linearly. And that within the next 10 years, that a single computer chip will have more processing capability than a mouse, and within the next five years after that, it'll have more than a single human brain. And then after that, the next five years, more than all of the human brains on the earth combined. So I actually have done a lot of research into um, what he's proposing and computing, and, and I actually believe that. I believe that within our lifetime, your iPhone or whatever base communication device that we use will have more processing capabilities, all of human brain capacity um, within our lifetime. So that's probably my outrageous claim. And then so the question is, is, if you believe that, which I do, and you know that, what does that change about how you approach things? I don't know so, that we want to recreate Mike. That's all I know. Well, I, you know, I was uh, I was going to say the fifty dollars Xbox. That's really, but, uh, but, but I think uh, for me, if I'm looking out, uh, I think for me the impact on education and following sort of Stephen's uh, example and his prediction is that you know wearables and not embedded, but I mean really, you know, implantable tech mm-hmm. will be such that you won't send kids to school to learn things anymore when every when the sum total of all knowledge generated by humankind is available to you immediately in your head and you're just carrying it around with you that learning will be a completely different thing and that kids won't learn to add or subtract or multiply they'll be learning something else i assume but uh but all of that sort of rote learning memorization that we did when we were younger uh, is, I mean, it's already a little bit of the thing in the past, but uh, it'll be a completely dysfunctional skill set. So we'll actually, for people like me, I'll probably be hindered because I'll be relying on sort of what I know as a person to build out as opposed to my kids. They just, every, they look everything up, everything they need to know they just search for very quickly. And it's essentially, most times, they can search it faster than I remember it anyway. I mean, so I was going in the same direction. One of the things, but this goes back to basically the entire discussion we had here. You can give everybody access to all the knowledge and all the processing power of all the humans combined on one device. And I promise you that 99.8% of the people who have access to that are going to play Candy Crush. They're not going to use it to solve 
world hunger or to solve. The nice thing is that... I'd say cat videos, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The nice thing is that there are people who are going to do that and be able to utilize that technology. But I don't know that... For me, I always like to think that maybe not 10 years, but humans are going to create their replacement. I, I always think that we've evolved to the point where we can now actually create our replacement and we end up in some sort of you know, Battlestar Galactica scenario. But uh, I think it's still going to be down to you're collecting. You have access to all the knowledge. You've created a data lake of the world that doesn't fix the problem that you didn't have a question to ask of it to begin with. So that's where I always get stuck on, that we're getting to a point where technology is not limiting us. We are limited by the inability to formulate the questions we want to ask of the data. And so until we get over that hump, it, I think we're going to hit this, this kind of apex of usefulness of these technology, these iterative technology uh, improvements or exponential technology improvements. So that's where I think we're going to. And then yeah. the other point is, how did you like your beers? Oh, it was, uh, yeah, it was very good. It was um, much better than I expected, like I said, because I, I typically don't like the black ones, but this one was pretty tasty. Yeah. The chocolate stout was awesome. I really enjoyed it. And I'm still working on my IPA. The beard the beard power is not overpowering the IPA yet, <laughs> but I'm working on it. All right. Well, thank you very much, Stephen, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And it was a fun discussion. So yeah. we will talk Appreciate to it. you again in the future. Sounds great. Thanks, Thanks a lot, Stephen. Yeah.